0: We are on a series, that series is some good news, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark, but we're taking a break this month, the month of December, and we're going to focus on this concept of joy, and it is this, the title is Irrepressible Joy, and it's because I believe that God is wanting a joy to well up within us, and we're going to see that, we saw it last week, this week, and the next two weeks. And my prayer for every single one of you, regardless of what you're going through, is that God would put such a huge deposit of joy in your hearts. And we're going to need to explore this concept of joy because joy is not just some emotion. Joy is something very different than this. And it is the joy of the Lord is our strength, is your strength. And part of our inheritance as the people of God, as his children, is this joy. And so I just want to start off and I want to ask you, to what degree are you experiencing this joy? And we need to explore this. Because sometimes when we're feeling down, we can feel guilty and go, why aren't I joyful? And we've got some answers. Scripture has truths. It's got answers for us that we need to look into, I believe, has the ability to set us free and experience the vastness of God's joy. Amen, church? How many of you have ever seen Star Wars before? Just uh, out of curiosity, we have this, a movie coming up. It's the last installment, episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker. And, you know, through nine episodes, can you believe this? And then they threw in two more, right? And so... I just want us to think about this for a moment. When you're when you're back, I'm a sci-fi fanatic. Sorry, and so when when you're when they're battling in space and they're coming into a planet's atmosphere and they're fighting, you will inevitably find some of these the tie fighters or what's the what's the good guys' airplanes name? Yeah, whatever they are, they get hit too, and and they start you know start spinning out of control. And if they're not careful, uh, within seconds they can crash. Now, we've not just seen this in Star Wars. We see this in all kinds of movies, right, in which that airplane starts taking a nosedive, and it's a scary thing. Now, Cole, I you've never been shot down when you've been flying an airplane, right? Right. right. Okay, good. Um, but the truth is, it's scary. I know that you have to do it where you have to go straight up, and then you, you do something, and it, the airplane, you know, you, you, you do something in, in which it's got no more power, and it starts falling, and you have to pull it out of a nosedive. Am I right? Kind of close. Okay. And that can be a scary thing. People have actually died doing this. And so I want us to imagine that you're in that cockpit and you're flying this airplane. Ladies, you too. Yes. And you're getting shot down. And what do you do? You're going into a tailspin. The first thing is you probably get on your radio. And what do you say? Mayday, right? Mayday. Mayday actually comes, believe it or not, mayday comes from, and I don't know French, but I'm going to do my best, okay? It's, it's, It's my dare, close anyway, my dare. Anyway, it means come and help me. And since the 1920s, we brought that into English and we say, mayday, mayday, come and help me. It's like S-O-S. Okay, except save our ship doesn't work if you're flying an aircraft, I guess, anyway. And so you, you say May Day, right? So I want us to realize that when we are when we are spiraling in our lives, spiraling out of control, unless something happens, we will crash and burn. Our circumstances can be such that they impact us so negatively. That These negative emotions of, of fear, of depression, of anger can control us, control us to the point where they take us into this tailspin, and many times we feel like we can't pull up and our controlling emotions cause us to crash. Here's my question. What do we do with this? This is a reality. It's a reality for every single one of us. No one is exempt from these negative emotions. No one. The only person who was, was Jesus, because he knew the truth. And that's where we're going to discover. The truth is at the very heart of what we're going to talk about today. So specifically now, today, I want us to talk about depression. And I'm going to get a little bit analytical here, not long, but I want us to, we're going to eventually see a difference as I'm going to use these terms, depression and sorrow, okay? I'm going to note a difference here. Because I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus experienced sorrow, but he also experienced joy in that very moment. And we often think, well, those are just two contradictory to emotions, and I'm going to suggest that they are not. We can even find joy in the most difficult of our circumstances. We can find joy. But most of the time, these circumstances around us impact us so negatively, they impact us, we experience these negative emotions of depression, anger, fear, and we start tail spinning, out of control. How do we pull up? How do we right this ship before it crashes? I want us to turn to Psalm 13, and I'm going to suggest to you that in your life, God will want to teach you. How to lead your emotions rather than your emotions leading you. Now, that might sound nice, kind of a little cliche, it's lead your emotions, but how do we do this? I believe David discovered a key, and throughout this month we're going to discover more keys, but how do we lead our emotions? How do we, when we are feeling sorrowful, sad, depressed, even, how do we pull up? How do we write that? How do we fix our situation? I believe David found the key here, so let me read. We're going to read all six verses here, and this is, in essence, David's cry of mayday. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Been there? Ever asked that question before? I think we all have. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And every day, listen, church, he says this, and every day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. This is a reality check. God, if you don't step in, death awaits me. This is important. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Verse 5. But. I want you to underline that word, put a box around it, highlight it, whatever you... But. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good. To me. David's cry of mayday is because he is encountering an enemy or enemies that are triumphing over him. We don't know the exact circumstance. It may have been the situation with his son Absalom. As his son Absalom is marching from Hebron to Jerusalem, he managed to persuade many high officials, army commanders, people The army, much in the army, to follow him, to coronate him king, and to displace his father David. He was was bitter towards his father David for certain circumstances in his past. It could have been when he was fleeing from Saul. It could have been a number of circumstances, even with the enemies that bordered Israel, that he eventually, by the way, destroyed so that there was a buffer zone, if you will, of nations around Israel. And David eventually turned the kingdom over to his son Solomon in peace. That word Solomon, the name Solomon actually means peace, by the way. And so it could have been any number of situations, but David is crying out to God because he's in a circumstance. He's in a situation in which it is bringing great sadness and sorrow to his heart every day. When he wakes up in the morning, he wakes up and there's knots in his stomach. He wakes up, and there is this sorrow, that, that actually a fear that's beginning to take hold of him, and he's saying, God, if you don't step into my situation and do it soon, inevitably my enemy is going to triumph over me, and I am going to die. And God, listen to this. This will bring your name into disrepute. And so I'm crying out to you, step into my situation. David is saying, "Mayday, Mayday! Come and help me." You know, David's request to be rescued and delivered from his experience that's causing the sorrow, even to the point of death, is it's, it's a reasonable request. All of us have been in cer- certain, cer- certain blah, blah, let me say this straight—certain circumstances, and they're impacting us emotionally. And it's not necessarily a negative emotion that's controlling us. It can become that. And when it does, our aircraft begins to spin out of control. And we start getting anxious. We start saying, mayday, mayday. We start saying, God, if you don't rescue me, I'm crashing and burning. What are we going to do? Generally, we say, God, change my circumstances, and then I'll be happy again. Now, I I think that's a legitimate request. Our emotions follow our circumstances depending on our perspective of them, but they they impact us. And and so David is saying, come and change my circumstances. (laughs) But what actually pulls up David emotionally, what actually does, <clears throat> in this spaceship that's about to crash or a, an airship of any kind. and is beginning, there's, there's three different options that you, you have here. Number one, cry out for May Day. Maybe someone will be on the other end and say, okay, have you checked this? Have you checked this? And someone who really knows the instrument panel and all the mechanics behind it, and generally a, a pilot knows quite a bit, but an engineer will know even more. Try this, this, this. And you know, you, you, you see them float in the movies. They're throwing switches here and there and, and trying to figure out a way to rescue this airplane so it does not tailspin anymore and pulls up. He's, he's trying to correct it. Uh, But generally, you have only seconds before you crash, so generally, that doesn't always work. The second thing is, you could eject. Now, David does not tell us that's what he's doing. He's not pressing the eject level, but ejection can avoid the crash and dying. The problem is, our life really does not have an eject button. There is no uh, reboot. There is no, let's play this one more time. Let's start from the beginning. There's no restarting. Life doesn't have that eject button that brings us to safety. And then the other thing is, we can, third thing is, we can try and correct it. Now, staying with the Star Wars illustration I began with, you might remember in the very first one, what is it? uh, the Phantom Menace, I believe, in Anakin. The guy's eight years old, right? And he's flying this um, pod racer. And the thing about pod racers is they go very fast, very close to the terrain, and they have to make quick moves. So you have to have reflexes that are incredibly quick. And so he he, he has one of his engines because they're 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 pulled by two engines, and one of them goes out. So he's throwing all of these switches. So the camera the sh- shows him flowing throwing all of these switches and apparently he transfers the energy from one to the other and he, sh- he shuts one engine down and he reboots it and that apparently is able he's able to transfer the energy back but you see him throwing all of these switches and the day is saved he doesn't crash he doesn't die and an eight-year-old ends up okay just so that you this uh, this is a spoil alert he wins the race right and th- that's number one that happened a long time ago so I don't feel like I'm really spoiling the movie for you. But he figures out a way, and I believe that God is wanting us to figure out a way. When when circumstances around us are causing us to tailspin, and every day there's sorrow in our heart, if we're talking about joy, where's the joy in this? How can we find the joy? So, As we look, let let, let me just, at, at this passage, let's just understand something here, and um Cole can verify this as, as a pilot, but when you as a pilot are able to get the nose of your airplane above the horizon, and in a tailspin, you're not doing that, if you can get it above the horizon, you gain altitude. If the nose goes below the horizon, and in a tailspin, that's where it is, you go down. So your goal is to pull that nose up. Let me word it this way. If you correct your attitude, if you raise your attitude, you raise your altitude. You follow me? If you change your attitude, lift it up, it changes your altitude. Joy is all about attitude, okay? See, let me just kind of piece this together then. Our attitude Determines our altitude. Number two, our attitude is determined by what we believe to be true. Okay? Our attitude is not an emotion. It can, be, it can have emotion in it, but our attitude is more than an emotion. Our attitude is a perspective, and it's what we believe about something. So our attitude... Determines our altitude, and our attitude is determined by what we believe to be true. Let me just test this. Right now, if you're going through a hard time, you're experiencing sorrow in your heart. All right, been there. Wake up in the morning, knots in your stomach, wondering how this is going to work out. You're trying so hard to, to keep your focus on the Lord, but these circumstances, they're like, it's huge. It consumes... Throughout the day, you think about it and the possibilities of how this is going to work out or not work out in your favor. And and it brings sorrow, maybe even fear. It begins controlling you if you're not careful. Our attitude, though, is determined by what you believe about that circumstance and who God is in that circumstance for you. That will determine your attitude so your attitude is rooted in truth can i assure you of this that being god's creation made in god's image it is satan's sole purpose to destroy that image of god satan hates god he hates god's creation his goal was to so mess it up, so destroy it, he came up with this idea of somehow introducing sin into God's creation and breaking it. He cannot destroy it because at the end of the age, God says he is going to restore all things through Christ and what Christ did on the cross. So I know that in the end, there is complete redemption. But now, Satan's goal is to destroy us that's i don't like being in satan's crosshairs i don't like that on the back of every christian though there is a target even more so than in the world don't let that deter you from following jesus because many times we just want to we want to figure out where the eject button is that is not the answer that is never the answer the answer is Finding joy. Finding what is that truth? What is, first of all, what is the lie that I keep hearing from the enemy? The problem, though, that lie that you're believing has stirred so much emotion in you, fears or anger, or depression, that, that it is so it clouds everything that we see. So we many times we can't even see the lie that we're believing. We're in this tailspin, and when you're in a tailspin, you're that, that ground you're, is where you're heading, and it's spinning around, and you can get dizzy, you blackout. You, can, it, it, you feel like it's, your life is out of control. It's so hard to see and identify the life. Many times, God needs to bring someone along our side so that when we're crying mayday, mayday, they begin to speak truth. You may not see this right now, but do you see this lie or these lies that you're believing? So our attitude determines our altitude. Our attitude is determined by what we believe to be true and then believing it. We generally rely, though, on our circumstances to determine our beliefs and therefore our attitude. And that is where God has to step in and change our focus. Basically, we say, you know what? If my circumstances don't change, I'm going to continue to have sorrow in my heart and joy will constantly escape me. That's not true. That is not true. (laughs) How can I find happiness? I can't tell you how many times I have been sitting down in a counseling session, many times in marriage counseling sessions, and the controlling question that they are asking me that they want to find out is, how can I be happy in my marriage? And what they really want is they want their spouse to change See, there's circumstances to change. See, if my spouse changes, if the circumstances change, I'm going to be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. You might experience some measure of happiness, but eventually there's going to be other circumstances that are going to come your way, and you're going to be focusing on the lies again because your happiness is going to come from here. It's not going to come from your spouse changing. That's the hard reality of life in which we live in a broken world, church. But we're, I can't tell you, the world and even Christians, they're on this journey to find happiness in life. Let me just tell you this. See, what I'm saying then is, see, happiness is an emotion. Happiness goes up and down. It can be many times determined by our circumstances. It can be. For David, it is. But joy is something that's more than that. Joy is an attitude that we possess, and that attitude is determined by our perspective. So if we have the right perspective on truth that will impact our joy level, the attitude of the plane goes above the horizon, and our altitude increases. Our joy increases, but it is all, or our happiness even, increases. So if you want happiness, you have to first secure joy. And I know many times in our minds we equate joy with happiness. That's that's just not true. When you look at joy in the scriptures, you realize that joy is so much more. I, I believe joy includes happiness. I believe God does want us to be happy. But you know what? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said this. He said, sorrow has so filled my heart even to the point of death. Jesus, the Son of God, was so filled with sorrow or sadness that it was so intense, he felt as if his life would be snuffed out like that. Not that he would kill himself, no. But it was that his heart, physically, his body was about to give out. That's how intense his sorrow was. David says, every day I have sorrow in my heart. You know, let me just share this with you. Philippians 3.1 says, rejoice in the Lord. Just a chapter later in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So hello, Jesus. Jesus. Why don't you rejoice in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is hanging on the cross? Why don't you rejoice, Jesus? Why do you feel as if this sorrow is so filling your heart that you feel as if your life is going to be snuffed out like this? Let me just tell you this, that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, listen to this. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy of, Set before him, endured the cross. That joy was what he was about to accomplish, rooted in truth. It was inevitable, it was going to happen. He was going to secure our salvation. He was going to win us. He was going to pay the price for our sins. And as a result, he was going to accomplish everything that was in the Father's heart that the devil tried so hard to break and destroy from the very beginning of creation. He was now mending it. He was correcting it so that people, you and me, the ones that he died for, would be able to experience this relationship with, with God the Father. That brought him joy even in the Garden of Gethsemane, even while he was hanging on the cross. Now I'm not saying he experienced happiness, but he rejoiced. We're gonna to need, to exp- to need to explore this a little bit more. Because I think that it is so easy for us to think that if I am sad, that somehow this is wrong, that this is sin, and that is not necessarily true. But let me, let me go one step further, and I, I'm going to define depression not maybe as the world defines it, but I, I'm needing to define it as, in a way to help us piece some things together. I want to I say that depression, as I'm about to define it, is different than sadness in this way. Depression is sadness that has begun to turn inward, has become self-focused to the point of a pity party. That then becomes sin. That then is the enemy speaking a lie that we are believing, and that ship is tailspinning that depression takes us down further and further. That is not what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced sorrow and sadness, but not depression as I am defining it for us right now. Okay? So you see, it is absolutely possible for David to feel sorrow in his heart every day, and God not delivering him from his circumstances for maybe even years. And so is he just going to experience depression every day? No, 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 no. He's not turning inward. He's saying, God, would you please come to my rescue? Mayday, mayday. But God does not change his circumstances right away. So what does David do? Does he pull the ejection seat? Does does he just give up? He doesn't. Look at verse five. But, do you see that word there? But. But I will trust. But I trust. Not I will, but I trust. Right now, today, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So he makes a choice. He's going to trust, number one, trust in God. Now, the Hebrew word here is hesed. Just get that little uh, in the back of your throat, hesed. That is our, in the Greek word, you may be more familiar with this word, agape, okay? That is covenantal love, all right? That is self-sacrificing, selfless love. That is somewhat similar to this Hebrew word. This word, though, captures this concept of loyalty and covenant. David and Jonathan, excellent examples in the natural amongst humans of this concept of hesed. They were loyal to one another, even to the point where Jonathan said, you know, David, I believe the prophecies made about you. I believe you're going to one day become king. Even though Jonathan was the crown prince and he was set to become king, he laid that down. He knew in his heart that was not the Lord's will. He surrendered that to David. David, you will be king one day and I'll be your right-hand man. And he was willing to switch it. Why? Because he had hesed. They both had this hesed for one another, this covenant we're in this together. You see, this is God's love and affection and loyalty to us. This is what David rejoices in. This is what he trusts in, that God is loyal to me. And even though I don't see how he's going to work out my circumstances, I don't get it. Day after day after day, my circumstances don't change. I am still going to trust in your hesed, in your unfailing love. Even though I can't see, I know this truth that God will never abandon, ever abandon, those whom he loves. You remember my testimony and what God brought me through through my knee injury and so on, and I had given my heart to Christ, and about a year later, God brought me to this point where Romans 8, 28 became my life God works together all things for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God cast his love upon me, this hesed, this unfailing love, and he will never, ever withdraw. it. That is a truth that we can stand on, meaning that we can believe in when you're going through your life circumstances that are so hard and you feel like this spaceship, this this airplane is spinning out of control, this negative emotion is so intense, you feel like you can't pull out. And you're saying, God, mayday, mayday. And God, here's what God will do. Either directly through his word or through someone else, he will speak truth to your heart. He will open your eyes. That's kind of like throwing those switches and doing this. And God is saying, if you can believe the truth of who I am and what I've done for you and who you are in Christ, when you get that, the nose of the ship goes above the horizon. Every time. Every time. Now, I am not saying that your sadness will immediately go away. David... His sadness, his circumstances did not change. But he says, I trust. Number one, I trust in your unfailing, your your hesed, your loyalty, that you will never leave me or forsake me, that you will not leave me to my enemies. You will rescue your name because as king of a nation chosen by God, God, if we go down, what about your name? I appeal to this. But David's circumstances didn't change right away. Let me tell you you this, they eventually did. But he didn't wait till then to allow God to fill him with joy and for him to rejoice. And do you see this? The second thing that he does is it says that he rejoiced in God's salvation. So through the difficult circumstances that he is going through, he is making a choice, an attitude. I'm going to rejoice in God for my salvation. He has come and he has rescued me and he will rescue me. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how the enemy is going to be destroyed. I don't know how he's going to pull me up out of this. But he has promises and he's going to keep those promises. So what I'm saying is God may not change your circumstances the way you want him to. But God, still fill us with joy because joy is a choice. Happiness is not a choice. Happiness kind of comes and goes with circumstances, but I believe that if we latch onto this concept of joy, eventually that happiness comes. It's inevitable. It will. And David concludes and he says this, I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do you're going through difficult circumstances, I want you to now start remembering and start reflecting about, up, upon those things that Jesus, that God the Father has done for you. Israel had memorials. They had celebrations dedicated to the acts of God throughout their history. That's what the festivals were all about and they made choices. We are going to rejoice. We talked about Nehemiah last last week in Nehemiah 8, where he said, I don't want you to mourn. You know, it's not that mourning or sadness was wrong or sin. He said, today, we're not going to focus on all the wrong things that our nation has done and how God had to discipline us and how he's bringing us out of that. And there's this concept of mourning and repentance that would be very natural. He says, not today. Today, we are going to celebrate. And they celebrated and they made a choice that we're going to focus on all of those amazing things because the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating how God brought them out of Egypt through the desert. And in the desert, they built these little huts. And they lived in those huts. And those huts would just simply remind them, even though life was hard in the desert, there was manna every day. And there was water from the rock or some other place, God always provided. God was bringing us, doing things in our life. And in our life, it's God is getting rid of this tendency to be like the Moses generation and and forming faith in us so that we'll be more and more like the Joshua generation that can take the land. Do you follow that analogy? That is what God is doing in our life. It was not easy in the desert. It was not easy in the wilderness. It wasn't. That's why they built tents, little huts. And after Nehemiah spoke to them, they went off and they gathered branches and they built these little lean-tos and they actually slept in them to remind them how hard it was, but how much and amazingly God provided for them. Why? Because of his hesed. You see, his unfailing love. So last week we looked at this concept of celebration. So I'm just going to encourage you, number one, the first thing, and we're going to be, in, in asking this question, how do I get joy in my life? We're, I'm not answering that question completely today. We're, we got several more times talking about joy, but let me just tell you this. Last week, we looked at celebration. Did you know that one of the greatest types of celebrations that the Bible talks about and even utilizes as images is the concept of a wedding? In weddings, the bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Now, I don't know if there's a parallel to how we do weddings and such in America, but it, apparently the, the Jewish man, the husband, would rejoice. Maybe he got on that microphone and he did the toast to his wife. However that happened, he rejoiced over his bride. He brought the people to his place, and that's where they had the feast. That's how they celebrated. Sometimes these it lasted for an entire week, but they would celebrate. You know, at the end of this age, we are going to all experience, all those who have chosen to believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we're going to experience what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the... That is supposed to communicate to us the sense of rejoicing and joy that, this, that sin and the curse is completely gone now. And all of those horrible circumstances, they were hard. There are desert and wilderness experiences. No more living in the tent with the lean-tos, right? Amen. I'm getting a little bit tired of living in a lean-to, if you follow my analogy there. and It is hard. It is. We don't like it. David didn't like it. He cried out, deliver me, Mayday, right? One day, though, one day, church, we are going to be entering into that feast of the Lamb. And to the degree to which this is literal or symbolic, I don't want to haggle over right now, but I'm going to tell you this, there is going to be so much joy in the presence of the Lord, and all that is old will be changed and redeemed because of what Christ did for us on the cross Colossians 1 uses a term for that. It uses this, it puts a prefix before the word uh, reconciliation, and we translate it super reconciliation. That's what God's going to do at the end of the age. I'm reconciled now, but at the end of the age, he's going to super reconcile. It says this, all of creation, all of creation throughout the universe that the curse has impacted, it's going to all be changed and all be restored. Every tear that we have shed. That's going to be in the past. No more tears. No more sorrow. Jesus experienced that sorrow. Jesus experienced the brokenness of this world. He experienced it. He wept at Lazarus's tomb. He knew what it was like. When his dad passed away, can you imagine? And yet... He chose to live with joy for the joy set before him. In Isaiah 62 5, it says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. When God, in the book of Isaiah, wants to bring judgment, he says it this way The voice of the bridegroom will never or no longer be heard in the land. That was his pronouncement of judgment. That sense of joy is going to be gone. There's going to be, uh, th- there won't be any more rejoicing because they will be destroyed. That was, that was judgment. And I'm only saying that because this concept of, of the bridegroom rejoicing over the bride is this epitome of celebration that we're going to experience. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, God rejoices over us with singing. These truths which have to do with our relationship, husband, wife, bride, bridegroom, relationship. These truths of our relationship with God impact our joy level. They take the nose of the plane above the horizon. That will eventually impact us emotionally. Maybe not right away, but eventually there will be happiness. So here's my challenge. Lead your emotions... Don't let your emotions lead you. And so to do that, you need to focus on the truth. One of the amazing ways that God helps us experience that truth is in worship. In the concept of rejoicing, I want us to hear also the word praise. If you were to look through the book of Psalms, um, and, and I've got several of them, and honestly, there are so many. I just have several of them written down concerning joy. Psalm 27 6, it says, Sacrifice with shouts of joy, sing and make music. In Psalm 33 3, it says, Sing a new song, play skillfully, and shout for joy. Psalm 42 4, it says, Shouts of joy and thanksgiving with the festive throng. And I, I'm I'm summarizing these, these verses, of course. In Psalm 45, 7, it says, one thing that uh, interestingly separates Jesus from us is that God anointed him with the oil of joy. It tells us there. And then it actually quotes it in Hebrews 1. Your throne, O God. But that he Jesus was anointed with the oil of, you're kind of experiencing or kind of expecting the word spirit, the oil of the spirit, right? But no, he says the oil of joy. Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy. Why? Here is Jesus, and he is the embodiment of truth. And not one time did he ever listen to the lies of the enemy. Even in the wilderness, lie, 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 lie. Jesus said, nope, I know that. That's a lie. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to play your game, devil. I'm not going to take shortcuts. I'm going to believe the truth. Worship is a declaration of truth. That's why we can rejoice. That's why he says, shout with joy. There is something, if you were to look in, in the bulletin here, we, we've had this for several years, but these are ways in which we have been commanded by God to worship him. You know, in John 3, when Jesus is talking to the the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, doesn't matter what mountain. What matters now is that God is looking for what? Worshippers in spirit and in truth. We are called to worship God in truth. That means worship him in who he is, the truth of who he is. But he now asks us to worship him in a certain way with shouts of joy. Look through this with singing, musical instruments, clapping, bowing, shouting, dancing, and and so on, lifting of our hands. You see, these are ways, these are demonstrative ways. There There is just something about when we are worshiping, and I don't know if you've ever done this or not, Obviously, several of us do, but when you shout for joy to the Lord, there is something inside of us that is released, and I can't describe it for you. I don't have a PhD in psychology, and probably they don't even know either, but the truth is there is something in which we, how we are wired that when we focus on truth and shout about it, it fills us up with this desire to continue to magnify him and exalt him and celebrate his abundant goodness. God wired us so that he wants us to be demonstrative when we worship him. And last week I talked very briefly about the culture of a church that many times runs contrary to what scripture declares, what scripture asks, scripture asks us to worship him in a variety of ways. But many times church culture says, no, I'm only going to sing and play musical instruments. And we don't clap our hands. And by the way, I'm not talking about clapping our hands to the music. That's what Americans do. Okay. Clapping to the Lord is a way of honoring. We clap as unto the Lord. When Josiah ascended the throne at eight years of age, it says the people stood up and they clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! They honored him. When the president comes into the room, generally people clap, okay? It's not because they're entertained, but the clapping is a way to honor him. And so clapping is honoring to God, our king, okay? And so as we go through these things, God is wanting us to be demonstrative. And I, I, I'm just going to, how many of you have ever been, on the, even on the ride to, to a Sunday morning celebration service, you got into an argument with your spouse or with your kids or maybe even an argument because you're the only one in the car with God and you're wrestling and you come into the service and when you begin to worship, Sometimes it's just the words. Sometimes it's as you physically engage and God just speaks to your heart, just bow down before me right now. Just bow down. And that prepares our heart to be surrendered to him because that's what bowing is. And as we do this, our heart attitude begins to change. We focus on truth. See, this is the power of praise. We focus on the truth and we begin to be filled with, with joy. Can I be honest with you? In, in especially the early part of my marriage with Meredith, we were on the way, because I wasn't pastoring, so on their way to church, We would, and it's only five minutes. How much can you get into an argument with, right? But we did. We found a way. We would get into it. I'm sure I started all of them, but the truth is we found ourselves into an argument, and I'm thinking, how did this happen? I want to be able to have a great time in the worship, and I'm going in there, and I'm angry with my wife. I drop the kids off at the nursery, and I'm going in there. But I tell you what, after that first song, God is saying, come on, Mike. Come on. Surrender to my truth. Who am I? I am the God that rejoices over you with singing. Do you see how much I have done for you? Do you see how much I have forgiven you? That's how much, by the way, your wife can forgive you. (laughs) okay? Do you see my love? Do you understand it? Let that love dwell in you. Let it burn in your heart. After the second or third song, because sometimes, my wife, it's usually after the first one, but after the second or third song for me, God's softening my heart. Invariably, I would turn to her and put my arm around her. Say, sweetie, I am so sorry for how I spoke to you in the car. And I try to get a little bit more specific. Will you forgive me? And she always said yes. And there was reconciliation, at least by the third song. (laughs) That's the power. You're declaring truth, and it impacts you. It takes the nose of the plane above the horizon because joy is a choice. It's a choice. And worship has this praise, has this amazing way of connecting us with that truth of God it raises the nose of that plane. Amen? So during praise and worship, don't ever hesitate to cry out May Day. God, please come and help me. And he will do that, I assure you. Psalm 47.1, shout to God with cries of joy. 66, one: shout with joy to God. 88.1, sing for joy and shout aloud to God. 98.4 through 6 t- talks about shouting for joy to the Lord or before the Lord, the King. Psalm 95.1, sing for joy and shout aloud to the Lord, our rock. Throughout the Psalms, I'm just, there's just a couple of them. There's many of them. <clears throat> I think unfortunately, though, it is so easy for us we focus on our circumstances around us, the emotion, the sadness, yes, even the depression, as we become more and more self-focused, okay? Hey, guys, I've been there. I have been there. And we feel as if we're starting to do a nosedive. And we're saying mayday, mayday. What we're really saying though many times is God change my circumstances and if you don't change my circumstances, I'm gonna crash and burn. See, that's not true. Because what needs to really change more than our circumstances is this heart of mine. There is something wrong. These circumstances are blinding me. That negative emotion is controlling me and Jesus is saying, Mike, lead your emotions. And the only way to do that focus on truth. I can remember, I've shared this story with you before, so I'll be short, but I want to make a point here. When I was starting the business, this was probably over 20 years ago. And I can remember going through the dealerships one after the other, trying to get in, and every single door was closed. And I felt like an Israelite out in the desert after the Exodus. Did you bring me here this far only to leave me in the desert to die? Is this what you have done, God? There's at that time I counted them, there were 60 dealerships in the Metro Orlando everywhere, in the Metro Orlando area. I had within two weeks visited most of them. And I was getting really discouraged. I, I was thinking, God, I'm here to start a church. Isn't that a noble goal? I'm here to provide for my family. Isn't that a noble goal? Where are you? Every single, and many of the managers that said no to me when I had talked with them a month or two before, they had said, Sure, I'll, I'll try you. No, they didn't. No, they weren't. And here I was, and I was having the biggest pity party you would ever imagine. And I can remember sitting down, I just said, God, I need a break. I am so emotionally wearied right now. And I sat down, and I ate my lunch, and I just had this huge attitude. I was in the plane, and it was spiraling <laughs> down me. And I may have said mayday once or twice, but then eventually I just said whatever, all right? Because that negative emotion was controlling me, and I was becoming angry with God. Have you brought me out this far just to die here in the wilderness? Really, God? because the truth is, Orlando was just as hot as it was in that wilderness, I am sure, all right? That's the way I felt. And I sat there eating my lunch with this huge attitude, chip on my shoulder, and I I was kind of curious as far as what was going on behind me, because they were taking this, like it was like a three-story, it's there today, uh, at the, on, right off 1792 in Maitland, There's a big pond and there's a fountain that shoots up. But behind it, there's a a house. It was apparently an old house. The wood was, you know, just rotting. And I'm just thinking, they're going to tear the whole thing down, aren't they? But I watched them. And there were other days later in which I I sat down with a different attitude, by the way, watching them. And what they did is they were pulling all of that dead wood off and they were restoring this historic house. It's yellow, so when you drive down, you can see it, and it's completely restored. It is absolutely beautiful. My point is this. God spoke to me and said, Mike, you got some dead wood in your life. You have lies that you tend to believe. You're not trusting in my unfailing love. And you're going to... a pastor really what do you have to offer those who go through these circumstances best of luck i'll be praying for you and then proceed to forget right is there not a truth that you can latch on to right now so that you can pass something up because people, it's our tendency, church, Christians, and we latch onto these lies and we spiral out of control with this depression. And, and, and you, God, it, Jesus was so sensitive to people who were going through those difficult times. God was so patient with his people as they were going through the wilderness. He really was. And God just began to speak to me and said, Mike, you've got a lot of self-pity rooted in lies that I need to remove from your life, all of that dead wood, I got to remove it. And God began this journey of doing that in my life. First of all, when I'm experiencing that negative emotion, that sorrow, recognizing, okay, hang on. Is there a lie that I'm believing right now? So here's what I want you to do. If you're in that wilderness, if that's where you feel like you are, what liar lies can you recognize right now that you're believing? And when we worship, allow those truths to confront those lies, to dismiss them. Recognize them, trample upon them. They are your real enemies, not the circumstances, the lies that you're believing. I just found when that day I cried out to God, May Day, he did come to my rescue. Now, for me, the circumstance changed that day a little bit. I actually got to do a vehicle. A a manager allowed me to touch a vehicle, and he liked it. And that account... uh, I was a, I held I kept that account for years and years and years before it, it eventually shut down but that was the beginning and then the next week another one or two and then the week after that more and more and God eventually did change my circumstances so what I'm saying to you is church if we are willing to cry out to him and instead of being led by our emotions, make a choice. Focus on the truth. He's going to take that nose of your plane, and he's going to take it above the horizon, and your altitude is going to go up and up. Can you believe this? This is truth. This is why David, regardless of the circumstances, but I trust in your unfailing love. I'm not not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I know it's there. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And he chose to possess joy at that moment. Can you stand with me? Let's pray. Let's allow God to sort through some of the dead wood in our lives. And remove do that, Father? You are so good. We don't always understand why we go through the things that we go through. We have questions, God. We have hurts in our heart. There are times, Lord God, maybe even today, in which there is genuine sadness and sorrow. And I'm asking you Lord God in your grace as we are crying out to you turn our attitude turn our heart our eyes to you Jesus one day we will have the greatest celebration at the end of the age and we so look forward to that but today in spite of our circumstances we're making some choices. We're going to trust you. We're going to rejoice in all of this, these works that you have done to rescue me. We're making a choice to sing to you, Lord God, and to declare your abundant goodness and to celebrate it. This is our choice today. We trample upon these lies of the enemy, and we are saying God declares this truth and I am choosing to believe it no matter what my circumstances are screaming out to me. I trust in your unfailing love, God. It never changes. Lift my heart. Lift my eyes. To see you my eyes off my circumstances fix them on you, Jesus. Thank you. I'm just asking you, Father, that you, right now, would begin healing broken hearts. You would begin restoring joy. The joy of our salvation. The joy of who you are, God, and what you have done for us. And I'm asking you, Lord, as you do this, God, lift us up. Pull us up out of this pit. Set our feet on the rock of Jesus. Would you do that right now, God? With this choice we're making, we love you, Lord, so much. In Jesus' name I pray.